Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. The many, many problems with the loot box bill. A lawyer's view. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're doing a follow-up on an episode we did earlier this month that discussed Senator Hawley's attempt, or at least announcement of an attempt, to bring a bill to the Senate that would ban loot boxes and quote-unquote pay-to-win transactions at the national level. It would prohibit uh, distributors from distributing games that had loot boxes. It would prevent publishers from publishing games that had loot boxes. And we're going to take a look to start out with at the original announcement that we did go over in that previous video, just to kind of remind ourselves of what he was proposing that he would eventually say. That was weeks ago, and he had said he was going to introduce the bill that week. So clearly, Behind the scenes, he was trying to get some other sponsors. It wound up changing a little bit. And then we're going to take a look at the text of the bill that was actually presented to the Senate to see how it changed, how well he did, even on his own premises, for what was going to go into this bill. And I'll be honest with you, it is as problematic or more problematic, both legally, constitutionally, business-wise, as we had discussed in our previous video. So this is not going to be a terribly genteel version of Hogue Law discussing what has been presented here, uh, because in fairness, I think it's absolutely ridiculous, and I think basically the entire industry should come out against it, should discuss why they're against it, discuss why the U.S. government shouldn't be taking actions like this. And uh, that's going to be the premise, that's going to be the the contours of the conversation we're going to have on this. Uh, But we're going to read through it. We're going to take a look at what it does, why it is upsetting to the natural kind of business order of things, and why the FTC, which is going to be charged with enforcing this thing, if it wound up getting passed by the House and Senate and signed into law, uh, isn't the right place for this to land in any event. Uh, And we're going to talk about all that on this episode. So stay tuned. Uh, We're going to go first into the announcement that he made earlier this month, as we said. This was on Wednesday, May 8th. Uh, And the basic premise here is he said that he was going to introduce landmark legislation that would ban the exploitation of children through pay-to-win and loot box monetization practices. He has some quotes here that says, hey, it's bad. The video games are preying on kids. Uh, And then it says, the most abusive such practices are pay-to-win, which takes two forms. In some cases, designers engineer games with artificial difficulty. And these games are often offered for free, enticing players to lower the difficulty by making compulsive purchases. And in other cases, designers create multiplayer games, offering players who purchase paid upgrades competitive advantages. That's his pay to win. That's two buckets. Uh, And then he's got loot boxes, which I think we can all recognize, but he basically describes it as I probably would, saying uh, things that offer players randomized rewards for spending money. And then he complains about that, combining the addictive properties of the pay-to-win model with the compulsive behavior inherent in other forms of gambling. 
He uses reference to Candy Crush here as something that he wants to prevent these problems from occurring in. Keep that in the back of your head, as we talked about in the last video. Candy Crush is a fairly terrible example uh, because every piece of demographic information that we have suggests that it's mostly played by adults, mostly played by adult women. And the fact that he's aimed at trying to protect the kids by eliminating the ability of Candy Crush to sell its products to its otherwise adult customers is in and of itself the place where this kind of complaint uh, starts and the complaint that the gaming industry should have about this kind of broad-based cannon fired instead of a scalpel uh, at a potential problem. Uh, so that's what he is aimed at. He also talks about potentially uh, walling off uh, players from these things. He says, uh, when a game is designed for kids, game developers shouldn't be allowed to monetize addiction. So that's He's aimed at games designed for kids to begin with. They shouldn't be allowed. And then he says, and when kids play games designed for adults, they should be walled off from compulsive microtransactions, that the kids should be walled off. You want to keep that in the back of your mind as well, because we're going to see that that exact quote that he used, this kind of bifurcated analysis of what should be allowed versus what should be walled off, didn't make its way into the final proposed bill. Uh, and so that created an even bigger problem while I was reading through it. But that's what he was aimed at. He was aimed at protecting kids by getting pay-to-win out of games and loot boxes out of games. And I think pay-to-win is a little bit more broadly defined than we would usually see it. Again, I discussed that on my previous video, uh, but that's what he wanted to put forth, and that's what he wound up putting forth in this bill. So let's take a look at the bill itself. So what we've got here right now uh, is a PDF version of what will eventually be presented. It doesn't have dates. It doesn't have signatures. I, I don't know that it has been presented at this point in time. This is from Senator Hawley's website directly, uh, but we have no reason to believe that this isn't the text of the bill that he intends to present. Uh, and we've got some quotes on his website of the co-sponsors that he found, Mr. Blumenthal and Mr. Markey, uh, as well as some other, um, let's say, thought leaders, uh, think tanks uh, that are focused on uh, preventing uh, problematic business practices against children uh, that also quote and back up what he's presenting here in the Senate of the United States. Um, so we're going to take a look at that as well, just to kind of give context to what's happening here. But we're just going to read through some of this. We're not going to read through it all in case you're already getting worried and your eyes are glazing over that we're going to read through every word of a proposed Senate bill. But I do think it's useful to kind of see what he's aimed at. And truthfully, he gets right to it right from the start. So he says it's a bill to regulate certain pay to win microtransactions and sales of loot boxes in interactive digital entertainment products and for other purposes. Now, interestingly enough, just at the very beginning, he calls it a regulation, a bill to regulate. This is a prohibition. This is a bill to prohibit these things. There's no regulation that takes place here. He's regulating video games in the video game industry, maybe, but he's not regulating certain pay-to-win microtransactions and the sales of loot boxes. He's prohibiting them. Uh, and so that's already starting out wrong-footed to me as I read through what this bill actually does. So it says, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, some flowery language, but it basically says, if this bill passes, that the Congress agrees to it. Section one, regulation of pay-to-win microtransactions and sales of loot boxes in video games. Prohibition of pay-to-win microtransactions and sales of loot boxes in minor-oriented games. So this first section, section 1A of his proposed bill, is aimed at prohibiting pay-to-win microtransactions, and loot box sales in what he is describing as minor-oriented games. He says, Game publishers, it shall be unlawful for a game publisher to publish a minor-oriented game that includes pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes 
or an update to an existing minor-oriented game that would enable pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes in such game. So this is the publisher. These are the folks making the games. It's distinct from uh, developer, but it doesn't really matter for this. The developer and the publisher are acting together. Uh, And if you publish a game and it is deemed minor-oriented, and we're going to get to that definition because that's an important one as we talk about this bill, but if it's deemed minor-oriented, it will be unlawful for you to make that game if it includes pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes. We'll get to those definitions as well. But that's the broad scope of this thing. It's unlawful for you to publish that game. Then they add on digital game distributors. So this is Steam. This is the Epic Game Store. This is the PlayStation Network. This is Xbox Live. It is unlawful for a digital game distributor to distribute a minor-oriented game that includes pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes or an update to an existing minor-oriented game that would enable pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes. Now, Interestingly enough, I'm not clear as to why digital game distributors are called out here rather than all distributors. It's unclear to me why, if somehow a game were published that included these things in a way that was untowards, that was against this law, and it got into a physical release at a GameStop, and the GameStop sold it, it doesn't look like this would apply to GameStop. GameStop's not in trouble. Even if they sold it through GameStop online, they're probably in trouble. And if they sold it through Steam, Steam's definitely in trouble. So it's weird how this is bifurcated. It's weird how this is set up. But this isn't the only place where this law isn't well thought out. I'm going to start out by saying I've read a lot of statutes. I've worked with a lot of statutes. I've worked with a lot of government. I've worked with a lot of government agencies. And this is a fairly terribly written attempt at a law. And the reason for that is because it looks like the folks in charge of writing this thing don't exactly know what's going on. And so they wind up grafting these other provisions from these other laws and other rules onto this thing like it makes sense. One of those things that we're going to see is that they wound up grafting entirely the COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, rules into this law. Not as a rulemaking authority for the Federal Trade Commission, like COPA is in and of itself, but actually into the statute and didn't change it at all for the fact that they're regulating video games instead of all internet websites. And they didn't even provide the exceptions that are in COPA to the way that functions. So we're going to pull that up. We talked about that in the earlier video, but that's the kind of thing that you see in this statute. So not only is it kind of offensive on its face in its breadth, and we're going to see that in the next section, but it also is poorly written and will certainly, if it gets passed or if it has any traction at all, will certainly get wildly amended by a lot of different constituencies and a lot of different people that point out these very kinds of things, these very kinds of concepts and problems within the law itself. But the basic prohibition in this first section is that you can't publish, you can't distribute digitally a quote-unquote minor-oriented game that includes these pay-to-win microtransactions or loot boxes. The next section prohibits even more. Section B is a prohibition on publication or distribution of video games containing pay-to-win microtransactions or purchasing loot boxes where the publisher or distributor has constructive knowledge that any users are under the age of 18. Now, When we talked about the statement that he made earlier, he said that he wanted to wall off games that were aimed at adults, wall off the kids from making these transactions that he didn't like if the game was aimed at an adult. We can just assume an M-rated game, a violent game, let's call it Grand Theft Auto, uh, just for purposes of kind of going through this example. You've got Grand Theft Auto there. They've got Grand Theft Auto online. Uh, I think probably, maybe, we could claim that that was aimed at adults and not at kids. We're going to see how the definition of minor-oriented makes that a problem in and of itself. 
But if we can say that it is adult-oriented for purposes of this argument, constructive knowledge of anyone under 18 essentially means, do you think that there's anybody under the age of 18 playing your game? Uh, and if you've ever had a forum interaction with somebody that claims that they're under 18 and are asking questions about how the game works, if you've ever had an email exchange where somebody's looking for a refund or looking to figure out how to get that shark card that they wanted or whatever, that suggests that they're under the age of 18. Anything at all would mean that you have constructive knowledge that users are under the age of 18, and then you're prohibited from having pay-to-win microtransactions or purchasing loot boxes. And they use the same language as above, so I'm not going to go over it in detail. But it basically says uh, it's unlawful for a game publisher to publish. It's unlawful for a digital game distributor to distribute uh, if uh, such product contains loot boxes and that distributor or publisher has, quote-unquote, constructive knowledge that any of its users are under the age of 18. In the law, constructive knowledge means it, not necessarily actual knowledge. Those are really the two ways to describe knowledge. You have actual knowledge of something if someone walks up to you and says, hi, I'm 14. You have constructive knowledge of something if you have an interaction with them or if you read a magazine article that suggests the demographics of your game are 5% people under the age of 18. You have constructive knowledge through any number of ways. And to be honest with you, reading this, the breadth of this is astounding because in all honesty, Every game developer, every game publisher, every uh, person on Steam, every person running any of these things has constructive knowledge that some player somewhere is under the age of 18. And why is that? Because even M-rated games are essentially uh, like an R-rated movie. If you've got a Guardian to buy it for you, you're fine. And there are parents out there that think their kids at the age of 14 or 15 or, or 16 or 12 are old enough, are mature enough emotionally to play uh, Call of Duty, to play Grand Theft Auto, to play these other things. And that's honestly up to the parents. That's the way this has been done in virtually every entertainment industry that I'm aware of in the United States. Uh, and that means that there are certainly some kids somewhere for every single game on the planet Earth, including AO games, in all honesty, playing it that are under the age of 18. And, and so... To have this kind of concept in here, to not require actual knowledge, to not require to just cut off someone if you find out that they're under the age of 18, is wildly broad. This is the broadest that I have ever seen in a proposed statute described to protect the children uh, uh, being applied to business actors in this fashion. So you have these companies that are out there making these video games. And we talked about this in the earlier video, but one of the problems you have with Congress and Senate in general, is that video games are not well understood. For the most part, the Senate and the House of Representatives are older folks, and they maybe didn't grow up with any kind of digital interactive entertainment. And this is how you get things like the Mortal Kombat and Night Trap hearings in the 90s, where they don't even understand what Night Trap is. They barely understand what Mortal Kombat is. And you get these kinds of laws, you get these kinds of rules and regulations from a group that doesn't understand video games. And so I think it would be very easy for the Senate, for the Congress, for the Federal Trade Commission to look at a video game and say, if you made a video game instead of a book, if you made a video game instead of a television show, if you made a video game instead of a movie, then it is aimed at kids because it's a video game. And I really think that's one of the major problems here. And because you've got now a constructive requirement rather than an actual knowledge standard, then it basically applies to every game everywhere. If you've got any knowledge that your game has anybody under the age of 18 playing it at all, and believe me, every game does, then you can't have pay to win and you can't have loot boxes, which means every game on the planet Earth can't have these things if this statute is passed in this fashion. 
That's the way I think the FTC would interpret it. Maybe that's the intent. Maybe this is essentially a sleight of hand by the senator and by his co-sponsors. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I tend to think this is shoddy drafting that is overbroad uh, and applicable to all sorts of things. But you can see that in the process of making this a bill, they wound up kind of shutting down the walled off concept. Instead of making a distinction between what is adult and what is not adult. If you have constructive knowledge that anyone is playing it under the age of 18, then you're doomed. You can't use loot boxes and you can't use uh, pay-to-win transactions. No, so that's the overall rule. That's, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's the ban. You, you're, you're banned from doing it if it's minor-oriented, and you're banned from doing it if you have any constructive knowledge that anyone, any user, is under the age of 18. Not a de minimis standard, not more than 2%. Not uh, some kind of threshold that you could apply to an analysis of who's playing your game, but any user, a single user, one user means you can't have loot boxes. And frankly, if you're working for one of these think tanks that you're going to discuss uh, after uh, we talk about the bill, if, if you're working for one of those, you have a kid, you have your 14-year-old kid go out and, and buy all these games, and then you report it to the company, and then they can't have loot boxes anymore. And that's... A real big problem for me, and we're going to talk about minor-oriented in a second, uh, but the whole concept here of protecting children uh, from these things that are essentially for adults, uh, and adults can make the decision to, to buy these things is a real problem for me. You heard me talk about this in my earlier video, but essentially, you know, you've got a game like Candy Crush, and I'm going to use Candy Crush because it's specifically called out in Senator Hawley's statement, and Candy Crush is a game that you play in general on a phone. And you use your credit card to purchase extra lives, extra chances to solve puzzles. And as far as I'm aware, it's given a lot of people a great deal of joy. Uh, it's a very popular game. It makes a lot of money, presumably because a lot of people are spending a dollar to get those extra lives. And to me, I look at it and say, well, if that man, if that woman is on their break, they work a hard job. They really like Candy Crush. It looks like candy. And that's the real problem that Senator Hawley has on it is that candy is attractive to kids and to no one else, which is ridiculous on its face. But it looks like candy. And this person's on their break and they say, hey, you know what? I, I'm OK spending a dollar. I worked hard. I want to spend a dollar on having these extra lives. I, it'll make me happy. And uh, they're not allowed to do that. That's what this bill says, because he has deemed and the Federal Trade Commission will deem. I, I think that's what he thinks will happen. I'm not entirely certain of that, but the Federal Trade Commission probably would deem that Candy Crush is minor-oriented, despite the fact that it's only really available on smartphones and expensive devices, and despite the fact that in order to buy things, you have to give a credit card number, uh, and despite those facts, he'll be deeming it minor-oriented, as we'll see in the definition, and so you, person on break who wants to spend a dollar on Candy Crush, can't do so because the government has deemed it unfit for you to be able to make that decision for the children. And to me, the great history of the United States is often pockmarked by laws and rules and regulations that are ostensibly for the children, but wind up impacting the way adults organize their lives, the way businesses run their business models between consenting adults entering into contractual relationships together. And this is really no different. This is actually a bigger bite of the apple than I thought would happen here. And truth be told, if this has any chance of passing, it will be cut down. Uh, it will be cut down to something that is more reasonable. I have suggested in my previous video, I continue to suggest that if you're really interested in protecting the children, the right thing to do is to say you can sell loot boxes and pay to win and any other add-ons that you want as long as you require a credit card transaction. 
And really, that's 99%, I would imagine, of these transactions as it is. But basically, all you have to do is prohibit prepaid cards. You have to prohibit the ability to walk into the GameStop and spend $50 in cash to get a card that can go in here and get a loot box. And if you prohibit prepaid cards, if you, if you prohibit wallets from being used in microtransactions, whatever else you want to ban here, we're going to look at the definitions, then you entirely protect from the, chil the children's issue. You entirely protect from that because the age of majority in the country requires for a credit card transaction for you to be an adult, for you to be able to consent to a contract. Credit cards act as a wonderful wall to what this is designed to protect against, which is the exploitation or the predation of children. And so if you require those credit cards, very simple, probably a minor uh, inefficiency in terms of the grand scheme of things, certainly as compared to this bill, then you have something that the industry can work with. You have something that the industry might not love, uh, and certainly the GameStops of the world might not love, uh, but it's something that can absolutely work to affect your ends in a more narrowly tailored fashion and without massive disruptions of what has become the primary business model really in the mobile space. Uh, really, when you're talking about free-to-play games and you're talking about loot boxes and you're talking about these add-on transactions, you're mostly talking about the mobile space, and that entire industry lives on these things because of any number of things that we could analyze about how the price has been driven down to zero and how things need to be funded by these microtransactions, et cetera, et cetera. But that industry lives there uh, and it wouldn't exist in the fashion that it exists right now if the business models that, are, that they are using are banned, are prohibited by the United States government. Uh, and we're not even going to talk in this video about the constitutionality of all this. This is essentially hooked into the regulation of commerce clause of the constitution but certainly with the breadth of the applicability here i think it would have constitutional challenges as well uh, as kind of normal statutory challenges so i think they've got a long road to go on this in any event uh, but even if that weren't the case this is still a problem just on its face so looking at those two prohibitions what's important in those prohibitions are the definitions so they define commission as the federal trade commission they define interactive digital entertainment product as, as video game. I mean, it's a program such as a video game that is accessed by a connected device and provides an interactive entertainment experience. Okay. Such terms shall not include a program if a user's interaction with the program is limited to selecting options from a menu of choices and the program would not be considered a game by a reasonable user. So this is the first kind of instance of this, but they kick virtually every hard decision out from this bill. And senators and House members and the like do this all the time, so this isn't that unusual. But basically everything that could be controversial, everything that could be a problem in terms of actually putting a definition on it, actually lassoing what the heck you're talking about, they kick out to reasonability, they kick out to commission determinations, they kick out to all these kinds of uh, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly uh, word salads uh, that don't really mean anything. One of the problems with this law or this proposed law is knowing exactly what it is that you're violating. In this case, you're not a game if you would not be considered a game by a reasonable user. That's intriguing. Is a walking simulator a game? You have a narrative progression. We've put it in games traditionally, but if it absolutely doesn't have any obstacles, it doesn't have anything hunting you or fighting you, you're walking through an area, how, how is that different exactly than going on a ride at Disney World? Is a ride at Disney World a game? Is a ride like Astro Blasters where you get a score at the end, but you ride physically through the location, is that a game? 
Um, and you start getting into these questions and this statute doesn't answer it. And that's a problem if you've got a law and you're trying to organize your affairs. If you're trying to run a company, if you're trying to make video games or interactive media experiences, it's important to know whether this law applies to you. And the breadth here is astounding about it claims to apply to virtually everything, but it doesn't even go so far as to really put contours around what an interactive digital entertainment product is. And that's broad enough as it is. But I look at one and say, it, the term will not apply to, if a user's interaction with the program is limited to selecting options from a menu of choices. I think that's designed to prevent you from calling Bandersnatch on Netflix a game. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You'd have to kind of read their minds to figure out what they're aimed at here. But I think a lot of us would put Bandersnatch in kind of the game category. I, it, it's a choose-your-own-adventure type thing. So it's hard to say whether it's a game or not. But if it's not a game... Is a Telltale game a game? If a Telltale game only includes menu choices, it's not a game. But if it has a small walking segment between menu choices, it is a game. Of course, this is all angels on the head of a pin because Telltale doesn't exist anymore. But you can apply this to Life is Strange or any of these other kinds of narrative-focused quote-unquote games, and you come to the same conclusion. Are those games? Um, if you have a loot box in something like that where you're selecting menu choices between dialogue options, is that a problem under this law? Does it change the way you design games so that you don't have walking sequences between menu and dialogue choices because that'll get you out from under this law? Or it won't get you out from under this law because the program would not be would be considered a game by a reasonable user. So it's hard to say exactly because the exclusion has an and here. So you have to both be menus of choices and you ha can't be considered a game. Any event, this is only the start of our fun dissection of the law, and we're only going to cover about half of it because a lot of it is organized around enforcement at the Federal Trade Commission level. But if you think we've just started, uh, we've got a lot more to talk about. A digital game distributor is a person that for commercial purposes in interstate or foreign commerce, that's important, that's your interstate commerce hook. So the United States, under the Constitution, can't regulate intrastate commerce. It can't regulate things that don't cross state lines. It can regulate interstate commerce. The Commerce Clause is the main hook that's used for almost every statute that's passed in the United States Congress at this point in time. And this is the hook that you see that's added here. Has to be an interstate or foreign commerce. I, honestly, everything is going to be that. These are internet transactions. So the courts have held that when you bounce data packets around servers, uh, it crosses state lines. The internet is essentially always intrastate, so they can regulate it. It distributes an interactive digital entertainment product over an online platform to over 1,000 users annually. So they've got a de minimis threshold here if you have fewer than 1,000 users on your digital sales platform. Okay, uh, then you're not a distributor, and then you, yeah, I guess you're free to go with uh, loot boxes and microtransactions, but that's really nobody. Uh, GOG, Epic Game Store, Steam, they're all going to have over 1,000 users. Uh, PlayStation Network, Xbox Live. Game publisher is a person that, for commercial purposes, in interstate or foreign commerce, develops or finances the development of an interactive digital entertainment product that is distributed to over 1,000 users annually. So actually, I didn't realize this up above, but publisher grabs developer. So if you develop it or you finance it, you're in trouble. So that cuts both ways, right? If you're making Destiny and you're... Uh, making it as Bungie and you're selling it as Activision, both are publishers under the law. Both can get in trouble for what it is. Uh, and that's interesting because if Bungie makes it and has loot boxes essentially added to it by Activision, by a co-company at Activision, are they in trouble for the overall product? 
does this bill take into account the way Activision is set up, where you've got all these little companies that are working on different pieces of a game? If you add loot boxes to Blackout and Call of Duty, and that was made by Raven or Treyarch or whoever, and Treyarch makes the multiplayer version, and it doesn't have loot boxes. It does, but for purposes of this argument. And it doesn't have loot boxes. Is both Treyarch and Raven in trouble? Is Treyarch and Activision in trouble? Is Raven and Activision in trouble? This doesn't wind up talking about exactly how games are made, period. And it winds up creating all these problems and potential areas of liability, this breadth that I talked about before. And I've used the term narrowly tailored earlier in this video, but for the most part, government agencies, especially executive branch agencies, and the Federal Trade Commission is going to be charged with enforcing this thing for the most part, are basically charged to make decisions that are narrowly tailored to their objective. The, the, the government has to say... This is what we're trying to achieve. That's what they say here when they say they're trying to protect children and they try to set the groundwork for why this law even exists. And we mostly have to take steps that are narrowly tailored to achieve that end if they're going to be stepping on anybody's rights. And so here you have this massive amount of breadth. And that's one of the big problems here is that they didn't establish that it actually does hurt kids. I'm not familiar with any study that actually shows a significant impact on kids as opposed to adults. They didn't take that step. They didn't go through these studies. The FTC had scheduled a workshop for later in the fall to analyze loot boxes and whether they actually did hurt anybody. They had solicited briefs and commentary on that topic for later in the fall, but this senator jumped the gun and decided that he wanted to make a name for himself by fighting against the video game industry, uh, which is very reminiscent of the 90s fight against the video game industry or the 80s fight against the record industry. This is a thing that governments do. This is a thing that senators and Congress people do. Uh, but he went out there and went after this thing without that study, without being able to show that this is a government interest at all. And then he didn't make it narrowly tailored. He made it as broad as possible. Blanket prohibitions on things that include constructive knowledge. So that's the framework that we're looking at it in. And then we get to the major definition. What is a minor-oriented game? Remember, they are prohibited. Publishers and distributors are prohibited from selling or making available for sale any game that is minor-oriented that includes loot boxes or pay-to-win transactions says the term minor-oriented video game means an interactive digital entertainment product for which the target audience is individuals under the age of 18. That's the overall definition. We're going to get to how that's even broadened within this uh, list itself, but it's targeted at individuals under the age of 18. When I did my previous video, a number of people commented on my social media and on the comments to that video that one way that they can check for this is that they can essentially take the ESRB rating. They can say things that are not M, things that are less than M, everybody, teens, those are aimed at kids under the age of 18. And everything that is M or AO, those are aimed at people that are over the age of 18. Now, I don't think that's a terribly good barometer. I think that there are tons of things that don't have to be uh, M-rated to be considered that they are targeted for adults. You could have a text adventure that was pretty gnarly in its subject matter, existential crisis, nihilism, philosophical ramblings, whatever it is. It could be targeted at people that are over the age of 18, but it's not going to get an M rating because it's a text adventure. That's just how the ESRB works right now. And so I think when you're talking about what's targeted over the age of 18, you need to be very, very specific about what you mean. And unfortunately, this law very much falls short of a very specific standard. So let's see what it says that targeting something at individuals under the age of 18 will be demonstrated by. The subject matter of the product. 
that doesn't establish what you mean by subject matter. And one of the things that we'll point out here, and I think I can pull it up right now if I've got it already selected, is um, these are taken directly from COPA. Uh, that's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And that was designed to prevent websites that are aimed at children from collecting personal information of kids that are under the age of 13 under the age of 13. So that's distinct already from kind of the notion of what it means to direct something at somebody that's under the age of 13 versus under the age of 18. And the law should probably take that into account, should have different standards for those things. But as we talked about in our earlier video, this COPA applies to a website or online service directed to children. And it means the following. This is how they define it. In determining whether a website or online service or portion thereof is directed to children, this isn't a law, this is a Federal Trade Commission rule. The commission will consider its subject matter, visual content, use of animated characters or child-oriented activities and incentives, music or other audio content, age of models, presence of child celebrities or celebrities who appeal to children, language or other characteristics of the website or online service, as well as whether advertising, promoting, or appearing on the website or online service is directed to children. Advertising, basically. But looking at this, it's important to understand the context of what COPA is talking about. COPA covers the entire internet, every website on the internet. And so there are clearly internet websites that are directed to adults, and there are clearly internet websites that are directed to children. And they have to make this distinction. And so they say, okay, we're going to look at, at whether it uses cartoons. We're going to look at whether the music is boppy and kids poppy. We're going to look at the age of models. Are you got kids pictures on there? You got adults pictures on there. Do you have children celebrities? You have people that they really like from the Disney channel. Language or other characteristics of the website or online service, I I, that one's a little bit unclear in and of itself, but maybe if you're talking really hip uh, and you're otherwise directing things in a way that kids can understand, maybe you look at the grade level of how things are described uh, on the website. That, that might be how they uh, interpret that. As well as advertising, how you advertise the site. Does it appear on Disney Channel? Is it in during DuckTales or is it during the Super Bowl? Uh, and so they have that conversation and that's how they determine whether something is directed at kids. But note that they also have an exception. They say a website or online service that is directed to children but that does not target children as its primary audience shall not be deemed directed to children. It won't count if they don't collect personal information, they prevent the collection or use from visitors who identify themselves as under age 13. So they've got it set up in COPA itself as trying to narrowly tailor their effect, trying to say, okay, look, we know this is going to drag in some extra stuff. So if you're not trying to hit kids, and this isn't the constructive knowledge of any user, some kids get on there, they're under the age of 18, 13, they tell you they're under the age of 13, you don't collect their personal information. So if you're trying to equate this to COPA, what you do in your law is you say, okay, when we talk about this definition, if you say you're under the age of 18, you have to, you have to say that you're over the age of 18. You have to check the box as part of a video game. And if they say you're under the age of 18, then the, the menu for add-on transactions and loot boxes is grayed out. It's not allowed. Uh, you have to say that you're over the age of 18. That's what COPA does. COPA says, hey, tell us you're over 13. And if you're over 13, we can collect that information. But this doesn't do that. This takes the notion of COPA and applies it to video games, which don't have the same breadth as the internet. Doesn't have live action as prevalent as animated characters. So when it talks about animated characters, which we'll get to, it basically applies to every video game everywhere. So it says the subject matter of the product. Uh, presumably this is, you know, is it about bouncing puppies versus is it about murdering people? The visual content of the product. This is again problematic because I think you've got Candy Crush, which is identified as being candy-coded and Candyland-esque by Senator Hawley, the visual content of the product he thinks is directed at kids. 
that to me implies a certain thing. And that's that adults can't like things that are cartoony. They can't like things that are color coded. This is a problem that you have in discussing things with a lot of people. I will tell you right now, I like the new DuckTales. I do watch it with my daughter. She loves it as well. But I like the new DuckTales more than half the things on TV right now. I like it because of its coloration. I like it because of its animation. I like it because it isn't as boring looking as a lot of dramas that are on CBS or NBC. And that apparently makes me childlike. But the problem is a lot of adults like that stuff. You go into a casino, just to prove the point, you go into a casino which actually has guards and people preventing kids from getting in and accessing the gaming floor. You go into a casino and look at the slot machines and look at how many slot machines have cartoons. Look at how many slot machines are related to cartoon properties. You've got your Scooby-Doo slot machine uh, next to your reality TV slot machine. You've got all this stuff that is designed to attract adults. It's not designed to attract kids. It's designed to attract adults because only adults can gamble in these places, and yet they still have this coloration. I, I don't know whether that's purely a male-female thing. I don't know. I'd have to look at the demographics of the slot machines and the casino games themselves. But if you go into any casino in the country, you will find games that if they weren't casinos, if they were just out on the street and anybody could play them, that this law would identify because of their visual content, because of fancy music that's colorful. Maybe it's like a calliope. A lot of these slot machines have cool call-outs and things uh, that would be deemed as attractive to children. But they're not because... You can't enter into a casino and you can't play those games. And why are they made that way? Because they appeal to certain demographics on the adult side. And by prohibiting loot boxes from things that you have deemed to be minor oriented based on visual content, music, the use of animated characters or activities that appeal to individuals under the age of 18. What activities don't appeal to a 17-year-old that do appeal to a 34-year-old? I'm just curious. When you talk about activities that appeal to individuals under the age of 18, this isn't under the age of 13. I do think there's probably a better distinction between a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old. But when you're talking about a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old, I'm not sure there's a grand distinction. And so when we say you can't use animated characters, you can't use visual content that's cartoony or colorful or appealing in that way, you know, is... is Something that Nintendo makes automatically aimed at kids, even if it has difficult control schemes to master or has a detailed storyline. Is that automatically aimed at kids because it has uh, anime eyes? These are the kinds of questions that don't come up, and these are the kinds of things that this law broadly includes in its operation. The age of the characters or models in the product. So if you depict kids, then you're aimed at kids. So is The Last of Us aimed at kids? I don't know what age Ellie is, but I'm not sure she's 18. And because you've depicted a character now that is under the age of 18, does that mean that you are aimed at under the age of 18? Or does the M that pops in because you're blowing zombies and people's heads off in that game, does that make it over the age of 18? Of course, it would appeal to kids that are under the age of 18 because a 17-year-old likes The Last of Us and would like to pop some zombies' heads off. So is it now minor-oriented? And it obviously uses animated characters because Joel and Ellie are animated. They're completely, uh, not drawn exactly, but created by computer to be animated. And they're not live action. It's not video footage. Is this law going to usher in the return of full motion video because it automatically means that it's aimed at adults instead of kids? If that's the case, I think they should check out Red Alert 2 or Red Alert 3 because that full motion video was ridiculous and doesn't depict anything that's necessarily aimed at adults over kids. Uh, that shouldn't be the distinction. But almost every game uses animated characters. Almost every game uh, includes uh, visual content that's appealing, that's designed to be appealing to people that are the age of, let's say, 17. And 
includes potentially the depiction of kids in their gameplay. The presence of the product of celebrities who are under the age of 18 is also a problem, and celebrities who appeal to individuals under the age of 18. The language used in the product, the content of materials used to advertise the product, the content of any advertising materials. And then we get to J. So the list that we just read off, as you probably recognized, since you're paying attention closely to this video or this podcast, if you're listening to it, exactly matches up with what COPA is. And so COPA is a rule. It's not a law. The Federal Trade Commission is charged with promulgating rules, creating rules that govern the way uh, the business operates because they are charged with preventing unfair practices and deceptive practices. And so they just borrowed those rules exactly, didn't change them at all, didn't consider the fact that we're looking at 18-year-olds instead of 13-year-olds, didn't consider the fact that the world of video games is very different than the world of internet websites in, in its entirety, didn't consider the fact that there's an exception built into COPA that says, hey, if you put an age gate in and they don't follow the age gate, then you're cool as long as you don't collect personal information. If you were really interested in protecting kids, if you were really interested in making sure that kids didn't get access to these things, you would make it easy for these companies to comply. You would have it so that the companies could have an age gate. They could do it just like COPA, every internet site in the world. And you could do it just like COPA. You could have that age gate. And if they don't pass the 18 check mark, if they don't say that they're 18, then okay, they don't have access to pay to win. They don't have access to loot boxes. But when we get to J in the definition here, again, we're describing minor oriented games. We get to J, other reliable empirical evidence relating to the composition of the audience of the product. So this says, we will deem you to be minor oriented if we go and we do a study and we, it turns out that the composition of the product has minors playing it. Now this doesn't establish notice exactly what percentage would make it minor oriented. 2%, 5%, 50%. What does it take for a game to be minor-oriented if you're just looking at this uh, as a study-wise? Also look that it drags in things that don't target a minor audience that just happen to be popular by minors. And all other reliable empirical evidence that the audience of the product as intended by the publisher or distributor of the product. So this says, let's say you failed, but if you aimed at minors and they minors hated it, but it really picked up with adults then you're still minor-oriented, even though there aren't any minors playing the game. We did a study, and we were able to find out that you wanted minors to be playing a game. The minors aren't playing the game, but because you wanted minors to be playing the game, you can't sell loot boxes. And we get you coming and going. Because let's say you didn't aim it at minors. We can actually look at the composition and say, hey, there's some minors playing this game. So you can't put loot boxes and pay-to-win transactions. Even all of your marketing was aimed at adults. Everything in your internal says, hey, let's get the adults playing this game. If minors suddenly decide that they like it, or maybe 1% of miners in your demographics wind up liking it, then we can get you on loot boxes and pay to win. But we're not going to tell you what composition means. We're not going to tell you what these standards are. We're just going to apply them to you. And if you built your entire business model out of the way you thought this could sell because you were going to aim it at adults and you were going to try to comply with the law, and we make a study and we find that one guy somewhere is under the age of 18 and is playing it, you had constructive knowledge, and you're done. And we don't care about it that much because we're really interested in protecting the kids, even though all of these transactions, almost to a, the end of the earth, require a credit card. And then they say other evidence demonstrating that the product is targeted at individuals under the age of 18. You know, if they get a tip that they were aimed at kids, then they could potentially use that against you. That's minor-oriented game. It's the COPA rules codified into law and then applied to the Federal Trade Commission rather than just saying, hey... You know, a minor-oriented game is something that targets minors or that has more than 50% of its membership playing is minors. 
something along those lines that's actually quantifiable that you could actually try to comply with if you were operating in the industry. That's why this law is ridiculous. Uh, looking at the definition of add-on transaction, uh, this is going to be kind of the pay-to-win side of things, mostly. But it says the term add-on transaction means with respect to an interactive digital entertainment product, a payment to the game publisher or an inter of an interactive digital entertainment product. <laughs> so they, they doubled up on that because game publishers already defined, but forget it. An affiliate of the publisher or any other person who accepts such payment for the benefit of the publisher of either money or an in-game proxy for money such as virtual currency. All right, so that was a ridiculous way to write the law, but basically it means if you pay money to add something to the game, then it's an add-on transaction. If that money unlocks a feature of the product or adds to or enhances the entertainment value of the product. All right, let's talk about the Federal Trade Commission and governments a little bit more. Unlocks a feature of the product is pretty easy to understand. I can allow that under the law. Okay, if you unlock a feature, something becomes open. It's got a lock on it. It says $5.99. Now it's unlocked. Okay, great. Adds to or enhances the entertainment value of the product. So let me ask you this honestly. If you're listening to virtual legality, chances are you probably already have an answer to this in your head. But do you think the government, do you think the Federal Trade Commission, do you think some people in some room somewhere are terribly adept at evaluating whether that $1.99 spend on something that doesn't unlock a feature enhances the entertainment value of the product? I think at its face, you have to ask yourself, why did you spend the money if it's not enhancing your entertainment value? What are you doing with this thing? So maybe everything does, but if everything does, then this is superfluous language. You don't need to have this language in there. You just say anything that you spend to add money to a game is an add-on transaction. So what is this designed to do? I have no idea. If you've got ideas, please comment below in the video description. Uh, I would appreciate your comments. But I think this is one of those areas where they're trying to sound like they know a little bit more about what's going on, and they don't. And this winds up being something where, in the worst case scenario, this bill gets passed exactly like it is. You wind up thinking about the Federal Trade Commission deciding whether that $1.99 spend enhanced the entertainment value of a product. That is just a morass of bureaucracy, and nobody should want that, including the people that want to protect the kids, because there's any number of ways that this could go wrong, and that the Federal Trade Commission could take eons to decide even something like this, and at the end of the day, the government is no place to decide what entertainment value is. Now, there's an exclusion for the definition of add-on transaction. It says, such a term shall not include a payment, which is made only to allow a user to access the content of a game provided that users do not have the option to pay different amounts to access the same content in order to unlock a feature of the product or to enhance the entertainment value of the product. I'm not clear what this is aimed at exactly. doesn't include a payment, which is made only to allow a user to access the content of a game, but it also says that it does include things that unlock a feature of the product. So your guess is as good as mine, but it's designed to say if you just have to pay the same thing as everybody else, then maybe it's excluded. Again, we're getting into areas where it's very difficult to tell what the heck this law means. And if you think it's hard for me sitting here as a lawyer who reads statutes fairly regularly, imagine how hard it is for the CEO or the CFO or the COO of, uh, you know, not the Activisions of the world, not the Electronic Arts of the world. They have squadrons of lawyers to look at these things. But let's say the indie developer, let's say the 12-man crew that's putting together a cool little item that maybe wants to have some add-on transactions, wants to unlock some features because it's going on the iPad or what have you, and can they say whether or not it's an add-on transaction that's going to trigger pay-to-win? Hard to say. 
because we get to the pay-to-win microtransaction definition, and we see that it uses add-on transaction as its baseline. The term pay-to-win microtransaction means an add-on transaction to an interactive digital entertainment product. I don't know why they don't just use game, but here we are. That, with respect to an interactive digital entertainment product that from the perspective of a reasonable user of the product is a game offering a scoring system, a set of goals to achieve, a set of rewards, or a set of interactive progression through the product's content, including but not limited to narrative progression. Yeah, this is great language here. I, you know, they can call me if they want to write this better, but I don't want to make it any more efficient for them than it is. This says basically at the start, with respect to a game that a reasonable user would see as having some kind of progression, a scoring system, goals, narrative progression. I don't know what that is distinct from because it already said in the definition of interactive digital entertainment product that if a reasonable user is only using menus and doesn't have a think it's a game, then it's not a game. I, I don't know what this try, is trying to grab, but they're trying to limit it to things where a reasonable user would believe that there is progression. The term pay to win microtransaction, which again, this is the one of the definitions of things that are banned. You can't ease a user's progression through content otherwise available within the game without the purchase of such a transaction. You can't assist a user in accomplishing an achievement within the game that can otherwise be accomplished without the purchase of the transaction. You can't assist a user in receiving an award associated with the game that is otherwise available in association with the game without the purchase of such transaction. Or permit a user to continue to access content in the game that had previously been accessible to the user but has been made inaccessible after the expiration of a timer or a number of gameplay attempts. So this is the first bucket. If we remember when we were talking about his commentary, he includes in pay to win essentially advancing through games. So again, this is aimed purely at Candy Crush. If you really think about this as Candy Crush, that's what this is aimed at. It's a pay-to-win transaction if you ease a user's progression through content, if you make the difficulty lower, if you assist a user in accomplishing an achievement within the game that can otherwise be accomplished without the purchase of such transaction. So if you give them extra lives, extra turns in Candy Crush to do what it is that you're trying to do. If you assist a user in receiving an award that is otherwise available, uh, again, kind of the same type of thing. If you permit a user to continue to access content, this is the energy kind of concept where you've got 15 bits of energy and those go to zero and you can buy extra energy faster, that kind of thing. That is considered pay to win. These are single player facing. This is, this is progression of narrative, goals to achieve, scores to hit. He's aimed this at single player games, in particular Candy Crush. Every time you think about this, you should think about Candy Crush. And he doesn't want you to be able to sell these things to people for the kids, even though the demographics of Candy Crush suggest that it is mostly played by adult women. As uh, including in this list is then the competitive aspect. With respect to an interactive digital entertainment product that from the perspective of a reasonable user of the product is a game featuring competition with other users, provides a user with a competitive advantage with respect to the game's competitive aspects over users who do not make such a transaction. The actual definition of pay to win, give or take, which is how we think about it as, as gamers and people that are interested in the gaming industry. If you can buy something that makes it easier for you to win at Clash of Clans, if you can buy something that makes it easier to win at some kind of PvP type game, then that's pay to win. And I think that's right. That is pay to win. The first bucket of pay to win has never been described like that in any fashion that I've ever been aware of. You're talking about boosters uh, and things like that. And, and that's a problem in and of itself in terms of broadening the scope of what this should be attempting to achieve or at least describing as a pay to win transaction. But he basically hit the buckets he was trying to do. You can see some of the complaints that I had earlier in the video. He can't even limit the definition of what we're talking about here without talking about a reasonable user. He doesn't even put in the law 
that it's a game offering, a scoring system, or set of goals to achieve, etc. It's from the perspective of, of a reasonable user, which always adds another layer of uncertainty. Because what does a reasonable user know? Yes, the law can decide that. A judge, when you're finally down talking about things in front of the Federal Trade Commission, can decide that. But while you're making the thing, what is a reasonable user going to think about the thing that you're making? You don't know. And that's a problem with the law. There's no reason to have a reasonable user standard set here. Put the quantity in there. Say it's a game offering a scoring system. Say it's a game set, uh, that incorporates a set of goals to achieve, a game that has a set of rewards. Whatever it is, just say it. Don't have this perspective of a reasonable user concept, but that is trying to broaden the applicability of the law. And they try to broaden it in every single area. If you take nothing else away from this video, come away with the notion that this is overbroad. Come away with the notion that even if you hate loot boxes, and I don't love loot boxes, I had a lot of comments on my videos and a lot of comments on my social media that say I'm trying to defend loot boxes. I don't buy loot boxes. I don't like them. I don't think they're a good purchase. I don't think they're a good investment. But Joe next to me might love them. He might have 30 bucks to spend and say, hey, I love loot boxes. I love Overwatch. Get me those loot boxes. And who am I to tell him he's stupid? I mean, I think he is stupid. I wouldn't buy the loot boxes. But he should be allowed to do that. And the fact that Overwatch has cartoon characters that Joe happens to love even though he's 30 shouldn't mean that he's not allowed to buy those loot boxes because kids might also love those cartoon characters. That's my, that's my stance on this. And there are better ways to protect kids. Limit things to credit cards. Have an age gate on the front of your product. All sorts of ways to better protect kids than this garbage. If you take nothing away from this video except for that, this is garbage because it's overbroad. And if you hate these things, there are better ways to prevent them from applying to kids. There are better ways to make sure that people aren't abused by them than a blanket prohibition by government fiat. Let's talk about the exclusions that he has to pay to win transactions. Such terms shall not include an add-on transaction to a game that makes progression through the content more difficult. You can make things harder on yourself. That's fine. Make things harder on yourself but you can't make things easier. Or cosmetic alterations. Such terms shall not include an add-on transaction to an interactive digital entertainment product whose only effect is to alter a user's visual representation within the game, provided that it does not, from the perspective of a reasonable user, provide the user with a competitive advantage over other users who do not make such transaction. Interesting. So now we're getting into game design, right? So if you're imagining this as Overwatch and you can change your visual rep representation, what happens if you change your silhouette a little bit? What happens if one of the silhouettes turns out to be competitively advantaged? What happens if that was an accident? Uh, is that allowed? And we're, in this scenario, we're not imagining these uh, cosmetics as loot box items. We're imagining them as just pay stuff that you can just buy because loot boxes are also going to be prohibited. We'll see that below. But if you can just buy a thing that makes your gorilla a lot thinner somehow, is that a competitive advantage? Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. What if it makes it fatter? What if it makes it harder? Generally speaking, you're allowed to make things harder. It's not a competitive advantage. It's a competitive disadvantage. But then we also see in this language a thing that they clearly didn't consider, which is how games work. They have talked about here cosmetic alterations that alter a user's visual representation within the game. They're talking about avatars. We started talking about Overwatch. They're talking about somebody that's inside the game and how they appear within that game framework. But what about how the game appears? If you're playing a top-down real-time strategy game on the phone and you buy something that changes all of your castles to uh, skyscrapers uh, or changes all of your farmhouses uh, to uh, underwater sea labs. Uh, is that okay? That's not actually an, a user's visual representation within the game. That's not the user's representation. That's the game's representation. Is this the kind of thing that we should fight about? Is this the kind of thing that the government should be invested in in any event? But this is the kind of problems with the language of the law. There should be better people that are at least more knowledgeable about the video game industry and how games actually function 
writing these kinds of things. And that's where I get upset. Outside of just having the law applied at all, I get upset about the fact that this thing isn't well written. And I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for a long time now. And you can write these things better. Honestly, if you're in the Senate, you have an obligation to write these things better because you don't know what is going to happen in committee. You don't know what's going to happen when the Senate gets it or when the House of Representatives get it. And so I looked at this. I flagged this. A user's visual representation within the game focuses only on avatars. It doesn't focus on the game world itself. And a lot of mobile games give you those kinds of options. That's what you're kind of earning is abilities to change how the game looks to you, but not your representation within the game. And that could be written better. It just could. Uh, Also excluded is additional game content. Such terms shall not include an add-on transaction to an interactive digital entertainment product that adds new content to the product, provided that the add-on transaction can be purchased only once. So it's really talking about expansions. And provided it doesn't do anything else, like easy user's progression, assist user, all the other stuff that they've prohibited from pay to win. So you can't bundle it. You can't have an expansion of some kind that you put on your game that also happens to do something that is prohibited, that also happens to give you uh, some bonus... Uh, energy, or that also happens to make it so that you have some extra turns in Candy Crush. You have to keep them separate. Uh, So they're trying to get to uh, devious ways they think somebody could try to sell a pay-to-win transaction. And so they've tried to say, yeah, you can do expansions, but you can't do uh, something that also is a pay-to-win. And that's pay-to-win. So the exclusions are limited, and they apply very broadly to basically anything that could help somebody play a game. Regardless of the fact of whether or not that person thinks that it's a dollar well spent to play that game a little bit, and regardless of the fact that they got the game for free to begin with. Either way, we now move on to loot boxes. The loot box definition suffers from the same definition as add-on transaction, but it says it means an add-on transaction to a game that in a randomized or partially randomized fashion unlocks a feature of the product or adds to or enhances the entertainment value of the product or allows the user to make one or more additional add-on transactions that the user could not have made without making the first add-on transaction and the content of which is unknown to the user until after the user has made the first add-on transaction. So you can't use it as a gateway to another loot box. But interestingly enough, we don't actually see references to cosmetics here. We see unlocks a feature of the product, which is not generally thought of to be cosmetics. Again, if we're using Overwatch as our example, we've got loot boxes that give you things like Um, skins and give you things like uh, vocals uh, and uh, other things like that. Is that a feature of the product? Maybe. Uh, Generally speaking, when I think of feature, I think of new modes and things like that. But this isn't defined, so this would be a fight that you also would have with the FTC and with the games. And In the development process, you'd be trying to decide whether you trip this uh, while you were making it. And then, of course, we have adds to or enhances the entertainment value of the product. And again, I'm not entirely sure what they are thinking somebody would be spending the money on inside a game, if not to enhance the entertainment value of said game. But if there are those kinds of transactions, I don't know what they are. And so this language doesn't make any sense for its inclusion. But I think, broadly speaking, it means everything. You're not going to spend money on something if it doesn't enhance the entertainment value of the product. So it means anything that's randomized or partially randomized that enhances the entertainment value of the product. Let's consider Hearthstone there. In Hearthstone, you wind up spending money on packs of cards. Uh, Now, those packs of cards kind of match up with the way packs of cards are bought in the real world, in the physical world. Uh, But you buy them, and they're partially randomized. Uh, You've got, I think, certain buckets that they fall into for what are common and rares and how many you'll get of each. But it's partially randomized within those buckets, and those would be prohibited. Uh, even though they do match up with the physical landscape of card games, which 
brings up the perfectly good question about digital distribution, which we talked about earlier in this video, which is, okay, why exactly are we calling out digital video games and not physical card games? Where does this end exactly, other than the fact that this caught your eye on this particular Thursday, Senator? And so I think when you're talking about this in its breadth, it's understood that basically this is a targeted industry because this guy doesn't like video games. If we look at some of his quotes, he talks about the fact that social media and video games prey on user addiction, siphoning our kids' attention from the real world. This is a cat that wants to see you go to Yosemite and kayak and whatever and doesn't like that kids are playing their PlayStations, which is fine. That's his adult right to think that it's a bad thing, that society's gone in this bad direction. Ooh, kids today. Old man shouts at cloud. But it's not our right to put into law that these various things that you don't like because you don't like an industry should be prohibited. And that's really the context of what we see here. Now, I told you we wouldn't go through the entire law. I did about two thirds of it. But basically, he then applies everything through the Federal Trade Commission. He says, except as otherwise provided, it'll be enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. And a violation of this act should be treated as a violation of a rule defining an unfair or deceptive act or practice prescribed under Section 18A1B of the Federal Trade Commission Act. This is the last area of the law I'm going to cover, but it was one that jumped out at me because it's not the area of the law that I would have sent this statute to if I were in charge, if I were the senator here. This actually goes, and you're seeing it right now, to the authority of the commission to pass a rule. Ordinarily, when you are going to set up these standards, you say, uh, these things are now deceptive or unfair trade practices. These are now things that we are going to cover. But you don't necessarily start biting into the rulemaking authority of the commission. If you've been to other virtual legality episodes, if you've looked at the other things that we've talked about that describe the Federal Trade Commission Act, the way this works is that Congress gives authority to this executive branch agency, the Federal Trade Commission, and says, here's the basic contours of what you're going to do. We don't like deceptive acts. We don't like unfair trade practices. And you are going to make rules that define what those things are. And you're going to make rules as to how you can investigate them and what you can do about them. This comes in as a later law, this law that's proposed by Senator Hawley, and says, okay, this stuff that we write right here is going to be deemed a rule that you passed, which is an odd way to do it. Ordinarily, you would just change the baseline law and then say the commission will promulgate rules to affect this law. And this happens from time to time. This isn't the only time this has happened in bills, but it's not a good way to do it because the commission is supposed to be separate. It's supposed to be making its own rules and not have rules imposed on it by Congress. Uh, it should essentially be instructed to make rules that comply with this law, and this should go into the overall ambit of the commission to prevent deceptive and unfair trade practices. These should essentially be defined directly as unfair and deceptive acts, if you wanted to do this the right way, in my opinion. This is a minor legal technicality, but it goes to exactly what the, the way this law was written, why it's so uh, kind of controversial, problematic for someone that reads these things all the time, and how it's just kind of... Um, I don't know, messy and not the way that it should be done. Um, so we're back at the rule. We're back at the, the proposed bill. The rest of this talks about the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, I'm going to link all this in the description of this video so you can read it yourself. But it basically just says the Federal Trade Commission can investigate these things. It can penalize these things. It can penalize these people above the current uh, kind of structure of the penalization rules. And then they threw on some stuff. They're going to be a study for compliance. They're going to put the Federal Trade Commission to make a report that ensures that the video game companies are complying with this. And then at the very last thing, oh, and by the way, you guys should do a study on whether pay-to-win microtransactions and loot boxes actually hurt anybody, especially kids. 
And it's just so funny that this is the last thing in the law because you've got this whole big law. You've got all these press releases from the senator and from the other people that are the co-sponsors about how problematic this is, how predatory, how exploitative, how this is a major social ill. And then, oh, yeah, you know, we never really studied this. So at the end of the day, could you guys put together a study that backs this up? Because that would be sweet. Thank you. And it really goes to kind of how this came to be. Uh, this started with Belgium. This started with really Electronic Arts going nuts in 2017. And when senators, when Congress people find a place that they can grandstand, find a place that they think they can get press clippings, that they can get articles, that they can get virtual legality episodes about them, gosh darn it, then they go through it. They go and do it because it can get those press clippings regardless of whether it passes. He got what he wanted out of this process. And I don't think, in all honesty, that it has a high likelihood of passing. I think this is a bridge too far for any number of people. I do think that the ESA and, in general, the game companies have to get their stuff together and start talking about this with Congress people, have press releases, talk about the protections that they already have for kids, the fact that credit cards really do block off most of these kids from doing anything bad, and probably take the a self-imposed step of making sure that wallets and prepaid cards can't be used on these things just to get in front of everything and then say to the Senate if they ever have a you know investigative committee say hey look you know we did these things we understand that you've got this concern but kids really can't get access to this stuff and so if they can't get access to this stuff what are you even doing here and so that's where I think things really come out I wanted to call to attention the, the press release that they put out there I will link this as well but we've got Senator Hawley saying only the addiction economy could produce a business model that relies on placing a casino in the hands of every child in America with the goal of getting them desperately hooked. We have Senator Markey saying inherently manipulative game features that take advantage of kids and turn playtime into paytime should be out of bounds. Some staffer got paid for playtime into paytime. It's, it's a good turn of phrase. Senator Blumenthal said, I'm proud to sponsor this bipartisan legislation to protect kids from predatory gaming apps and hold bad actors accountable for their reprehensible practices. And then we've got the think tanks. Tricking kids into spending money while they play games is unacceptable and should be illegal. It is beyond unfair for developers to rig their games to manipulate children into making purchases themselves or nagging their parents to do so. Now, that's an interesting one. So I've talked about credit cards and I've talked about the fact that kids can't make these spends. I think that's an acknowledgement of that from commercial free childhood. But they don't want kids to be able to nag their parents either. Apparently, they want parents to be able to hand their kids an iPad to do whatever they want with it and then to kids to never talk to the parents again and the parents to never have to talk to the kids again. It's unclear to me. But they definitely want the federal government to act as parent in this respect and to make sure that video game companies can't offer any sales to that person on their break that wants to spend a dollar on Candy Crush. You also have the president of the Parents Television Council saying we applaud the effort and focus on the family, saying they support legislative efforts at the federal level that seek to protect impressionable children from the dangers of online gaming, and specifically those games that utilize pay-to-win and loot box monetization schemes, which is good because that's what the bill ostensibly does. These dangerous gambling-like attributes are psychologically manipulative and may cause unsophisticated users such as children to become addicted. It's unclear how they will become addicted if they can't actually make the purchase themselves, but here we are. And again... This is all coming from a person that doesn't like loot boxes, doesn't particularly like free-to-play microtransactions, and plays a few games on their phone, and also has their kids play on their iPads regularly. And I don't want to toot my own horn on this kind of stuff, because my wife does as much of this, or more, than I do, 
but we have special days and special chores where you can earn uh, new games on the iPad or even gems if you'd prefer to spend them on that and making your dragon house whatever it is that you wanted to make it. And frankly, I think it's a fairly good way to t teach economics uh, in the modern age. And I think that there's a lot that can be learned from video games and a lot that shouldn't necessarily just be prohibited or banned because they don't like it. But at the end of the day, it's really about what the Federal Trade Commission can do, what they are supposed to do, and whether or not any of this makes sense. So I found a speech from a Federal Trade Commissioner uh, in 2009, I believe it is, and he talks about unfairness. Now again, the Federal Trade Commission Act is basically empowering the Federal Trade Commission to protect against two things, deceptive trade practices. And I don't think anybody's really claiming that this is deceptive. Mostly people understand that when they spend 99 cents, they're getting a loot box, etc. I think you could argue certain things on deception. You could do like China has done and say, if you're going to do a loot box, you have to have a loot table. You have to put the percentages out there. You have to be more transparent. It doesn't make a loot box necessarily deceptive, but transparency is always a reasonable goal. That's not what's in this current bill. This prohibits these activities entirely. So they're really looking at it as an unfair trade practice. They want the Federal Trade Commission to see this as unfair. And so I found this speech and I thought it was interesting because they talk about unfairness because it's had a long and storied history. It's tortured history with the Federal Trade Commission because it's not a defined term. So the Federal Trade Commission has litigated this ad infinitum because a lot of people are like, well, how am I supposed to know what's unfair if you don't decide it until you're looking at me and you say, yep, that's unfair. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the Federal Trade Commission, especially what wound up happening with some of their earlier efforts to protect things for the kids. So this is a speech from the Federal Trade Commission about 2009. The unfairness prong of Section 5 of the FTC Act has likewise undergone a metamorphosis. Shortly before I got to the FTC in 1973, the Supreme Court held in Sperry and Hutchinson that the commission could act like a court of equity in determining whether unfairness existed. Accordingly, the commission applied standards that can best be described as bloppy. In its trade regulation rule for unfair or deceptive advertising and labeling of cigarettes in relation to the ha health hazards of smoking, for example, the commission said that in determining whether an act or practice was unfair, it would consider whether the practice affects public policy, whether it is immoral, unethical, oppressive, or unscrupulous, and whether it causes substantial injury to consumers. In the Bureau of, Com of Consumer Protection, we created a whole new special products division whose mission was to explore the outer boundaries of unfairness using these bloppy standards as a lodestar. That division did some fine work. For example, it developed the funeral rule and the holder and due course rule, which I would argue have conferred enormous benefits on consumers. However, in other matters, the outer boundaries that were explored had few limiting principles. Chief among these was the so-called KidVid initiative, which tried to define unfair practices in marketing products to children and which was buried under a heap of scorn, the Washington Post accusing us of trying to be the national nanny. So in 1980, the commission issued a policy statement that defined an unfair act or practice at one that causes or is likely to cause substantial injury to consumers, which is, not reasonably un uh, which is not reasonably avoidable by consumers themselves and not outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers and to competition. The agency fleshed this standard out in its policy statement and subsequently in International Harvester, explaining that substantial injuries to consumers would exist if the practice does a small harm to a large number of people or it raises a significant risk of concrete harm. The commission added, however, that substantial injury did not ordinarily include emotional injury, or distress. Additionally, the commission explained that whether some consequence is reasonably avoidable depends not just on whether people know the physical steps to take in order to prevent it, but also whether they understand the necessity of actually taking those steps. In the FTC Act amendments of 1994, Congress codified the basic definition in the 1980 policy statement without the explanatory language. 
Section 5N probably does fence the commission off from some of the consumer protection experimentation that it did in the immediate wake of the SNH case. However, the requirements of the statutory definition of unfairness are certainly met in the data security pretexting and spyware cases we have brought based on unfairness. And because the policy statement's positions respecting emotional injury or, dist or distress was not enacted into law, I believe that the door has been left open for the commission to use unfairness in cases where the injury is substantially, it does not result in the typical quantifiable injury. There is no mystery as to why the commission issued its 1980 policy statement or why the Congress codified the basic definition of unfairness in the statute in 1994. Both were a reaction to a pretty much untethered notion of unfairness in the consumer protection area, both the policy statement and the statutory amendment providing limiting principles. And as I say, I doubt either has crippled our consumer protection mission. So the FTC has a history of working with undefined terms and unfair trade practices was one of those terms until they wound up putting this definition in place. And the definition was basically that it causes or is likely to cause substantial injury, which is not reasonably avoidable by consumers themselves and not outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers and to competition. So right now we've got a law that's been proposed that doesn't establish the existence of a substantial injury. We've got a law that is proposed that would seem to be reasonably avoidable by consumers because we're talking about kids in particular, and it would seem that consumers can prevent kids from making the purchases that they would otherwise not be able to make without a credit card or without a drive to the GameStop to get a prepaid card. And I certainly think game companies can go the extra mile and prohibit wallets and prepaid cards from being operated on these things if they want to take that step and is not outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers and to competition. Certainly these game companies are competing on these models. They're competing on economics. They're making their models better than the next guy, presumably because they're operating in a fully competitive environment. Clash of Clans has to evaluate whether it's losing product or whether it's losing customers to whatever the next Clash of Clans is. It has to adjust its economics and its model based on that. And presumably consumers are benefiting to some extent because they're spending the money on the thing. And so they are deeming that the value of whatever it is that they're getting is higher than the dollar that they spent to get it. That's the nature of a freely exercised trade. And so without that study, without any further analysis that was done by these senators, we don't have anything to go on that would suggest the Federal Trade Commission should act on this. That's why the Federal Trade Commission, by the way, had started to do a loot box initiative to look at whether or not these things were actually hurting people, to look at whether or not they would have a claim under unfair trade practices. Instead, by fiat, the senators have determined without studies, without authority, and without any kind of indication other than the fact that they want to make a name for themselves, that this harm is being caused, that there isn't a reasonable way to avoid it by consumers, and that there aren't any benefits that are gained to consumers or through the competition of the markets that are involved. They've just decided that. And so... If this were to pass, it would be essentially taking out of the hands of the Federal Trade Commission into Congress's hands, which Congress has the authority to do, uh, and saying this is unfair trade practices because we say it is, and the commission will enforce it because we say it is unfair. Whether or not you believe that, I think what largely depends on whether or not you accept any of the arguments and issues that I've had with the law and the bill in and of itself. But that's what's been presented. That's the problem. And I think the Federal Trade Commission is going to have its hands full if this law winds up passing. And this was a speech by the Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission in 2007, not 2009, from J. Thomas Roche. Uh, and I'm going to link that in the description, of course. But that has been our follow-up virtual legality episode on this law, on this proposed law, this bill that's currently been presented to the United States Senate. I certainly think if you're at all interested in this stuff, uh, to check out my earlier video where I go in depth and talk about COPA and I talk about Senator Hawley's initial comments 
but I think it's a existing problem for the industry. I don't know that there's a lot of appetite for Congress or for the Senate to actually pass something like this at this point in time. I do think it's grandstanding. I don't know that it will necessarily survive uh, the entire lawmaking process, but it's certainly something the industry has to keep its eyes on. And it's certainly something the industry's lobbyists and people that are invested in making sure that the industry doesn't get railroaded on these kinds of things has to keep its eyes on. And we might yet be looking at another Mortal Kombat and Night Trap hearings fiasco uh, where both the video game industry is put on trial and the United States Congress and Senate establish firmly for all to see that they have no idea what's going on with respect to digital interactive entertainment. Those are my two cents. This has been Virtual Legality. If you like this video, please do like, please subscribe. I do videos like this all the time. I just went over uh, a very interesting lawsuit between Tifu and FaZe Clan about whether or not uh, he can get out of his contract there. Some more information has developed on that story, which I might also follow up on. And I do postmortems on uh, pop culture items as well. So I do impressions of video games. I talked about Game of Thrones episodes. It's an all-encompassing law firm channel. In my opinion, the best law firm channel on YouTube. So please tell your friends, share it around. I love having those engagements with new people. Uh, like this channel uh, and subscribe to it. And if you're listening to it on a podcast, please review it on the podcast service. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you're listening to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next virtual legality.